Hello, everyone. I'm so happy to be back on Contingent Workforce Radio, brought to you by Beeline, the world's first extended workforce platform that enables total talent visibility and compliance for your entire workforce. My name is Erica Novak. I'm VP of Executive Management here at Beeline, and I'm thrilled about this 2023 lineup coming your way. And to kick us off, I'd like to introduce Jeff Dubisky. He is Intuitive Surgical's global TA lead for the Contingent Workforce Strategy, and today we're speaking about strategic leadership. Jeff, I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you again. We had a blast last year at SIG. For the listeners who are newer to your voice, can you introduce yourself? Sure, Erica, and thanks so much for having me. And we did have a lot of fun for the SIG conference, so thanks for that invite. So Jeff Dubisky, as you mentioned, Global TA Lead for Contingent Workforce Strategy. I've been with Intuitive about a year, and this is, as I mentioned to you, the closing mosaic on my career of being now on the practitioner side. Uh, And the reason for that is I spent probably 15 years or so in the contingent workforce MSP side of the house and vendor on premise, and then moved into consulting, into RPO, back into MSP, and here I am here. So it's just really great to look at almost 30 years of how this whole arena has changed and bring it to life as a practitioner. So again, thanks for having me. No, absolutely. I love speaking to people with backgrounds like yours. There's a lot of folks who are only CW practitioner or only services or only technology. And I love people who are able to have seen it from either side and recognize what's the black box, what's the gray, how communication does really matter. And so I think you bring a really distinctive perspective to what we're about to talk about. Again, strategic leadership. And I think this becomes really important, especially as our industry has grown. I think about when you and I first started. Maybe this was someone's part-time job, 15% of the job, a collection of just doing staffing contracts as part of a larger job. Especially in the last three to five years, I've seen just the proliferation of folks who are really responsible 100% in the CW-related matter from TA or procurement. And there's really a strong desire in CW leaders to be considered a strategic asset, an advisor to the business, rather than just this operational arm. We're, We're a little wounded. Everyone feels like we're just services folks versus a strategic arm to the business. And they have so much they want to say and they do. And what I've heard is there's frustration when it doesn't land or they're overruled or they're not heard or prioritized. And that's probably in the last three years I've heard is I just can't get priority. No one cares enough. They think of me as an add-on versus part of. You and I have chatted about this is that we don't think some folks maybe are recognizing how to actually become and behave strategically. They're asking to be thought of strategic, but they're actually impersonating the persona of someone who thinks and behaves strategically. And so that's really what I want you and I to focus on today is to give tips, tricks, your experience on what does that actually mean and how people can start to look at their behavior and their leadership skills and ideally start to change and take some takes away. So let's dive into that. And as always, I'm a big believer in defining our terms. Our listeners here are our junior folks who are doing this for the very first time, someone who's got five years under the belt, and others like us who have 15 to 20 years experience. So when we think about what is strategic, what are you talking about? Uh, it's a great question. And going back to your opening too, we have been here a while. You know, we really have. It's interesting, obviously, with your side of the house on technology and Beeline, I mean, my first VMS was a fax machine. Let's get it out there. My <laughs> group one was my you know, IT distribution. And so we really have seen a lot of changes in the industry, but we've also seen a lot stay the same. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think people always struggle with, I want to be strategic. And where I think we've come, at least in the past, let's say 15 years or so, is the difference between understanding strategy as a seat at the table 
and strategy being a voice at the table because they are two very different things. And a lot of that comes around to, I would say, just a handful of things. Number one, especially we as strong practitioners, consultants, whatever we are, we typically have a strong passion and a point of view. And sometimes that puts our agenda in front of the others that we're trying to actually work with and work through and work for. So we have to temper that, number one. Number two, I think we need to understand that there are times when a strategy is defined or trying to define a strategy has to look at how people are going to feel, whether it's being done to them or done with them, right? Great balance there. And so I tend to look at it from two lenses. The first would be determine a path to align the initiatives and the outcomes around a long range plan. And for some people, long range might be two years, it might be five years, but align them along the path of what the organization is really doing enterprise wide. And then secondly, is how do we then navigate that plan, adjusting for organizational and market influences, right? So what are we hearing in the market? What are we pulling from our data and allowing us to come alongside of now our stakeholders that have bought into whatever strategy we've defined and incrementally make those short-term adjustments. Um, And it really comes down to a lot of people think strategy is this overarching, big, heavy thing, when quite honestly, the big, heavy thing is the execution, right? Because we know that even the best laid plans are going to be interrupted or altered along the way. No, and I think that's exactly right. I think the difference between execution and operations, it could be a synonym, but it actually isn't. And I think you're exactly right. People, they want the voice. They want people to say, yes, I agree with you. And therefore I should versus yes, I agree with you. Therefore go do, right? And I think when I think about the best strategic leaders, they always have a reputation of having done to get there. And then if they're no longer the one who is doing, they are hiring phenomenal executionists that are able to go through the roadmap and get that done. And they lead the path and they help funnel, knowing that there's going to be noise. You're exactly right. It's never a straight line. As a lady who has curly hair, that's really how I feel like most plans go, right? It's a little bend here, a little bend there, but at the end, you get to the end. The other thing you had shared before with me, it was about the ability to influence and to partner and solve problems. So can you weave that into your execution idea? Another great question. And also what I think about it is a lot of times we have to think about strategy as almost eliminating the job that we have today, right? How do we level up? And that's really the goal we want to get to. And so there's really, I would say, three components of that, which is number one, We need to solve problems first. We need to be able to solve problems that people then look at us around credibility, around building a reputation as a go-to. I know in my past history of running a lot of outsourced services, our intentional scope creep and hence revenue and value to our client base was all because we solved problems and they came to us with other things, right? So whether when I was at EY or when I was at Yo or Workforce Logic or any of those places, The expansions were always, hey, you've done a good job here, so here. So that blocking and tackling of solving and creating sustainable fixes, right? Not just the whack-a-mole approach. So I think that's part one. Part two is then creating the horizontal layer. A lot of times we think strategy is always leveling up and spending time with the C-suite. And we have to really think about the fact that the C-suite has its attention in so many fragments that when we do go there, we want to go there so intentionally. And so well that, again, that credibility builds. So really that partnership of looking at everybody at the middle layers that know how to navigate processes, policies, what are their pain points? Don't go in again with your agenda of I need to fix this. It's, hey, if we mutually take a look at this and tear it apart, what's in it for you? What's in it for me? 
Now we have a mutual collab that really allows us to move forward. And then I would say lastly is that if I get the first two done well, now I have the ability to influence. Again, reputation of getting things done and sustainable, of driving operational metrics, of putting things that ultimately affect EBITDA and the language of the business will really then allow you to not only then go up to additional levels, stretch your programs, but quite honestly, when you do get in front of your C-suite, now you're coming with recommendations only, not a problem, a recommendation of something you'd like to do, what the intended outcome is, and just basically, can I get approval? And quite honestly, walking into that discussion prepared, but also, again, the reputation of getting it done is where you get your green lights. There's so much goodness in that. I love how you talked about you're solving their problems. When I think about CW programs, and I've said this till I blew in the face, there's no one way to eat a Reese's. There's no one way to design a CW program. Where I see pitfalls happening is whether it's someone from an MSP side or a CW program, they come in and say, I know how to do it. Fix your rate, standardize your contracts. It should be supplier owned, not but. And they go to a new company and say, these are the problems I'm here to fix. And again, serving is not a bad thing. When I think about typically a CW world, we're in the upside. That's okay. We're not mm -hmm. fueling the business. Our job is to make it faster, better payment, and no one's breaking the law. Let's just break that down. It can still be strategic, but we come to you said like with an agenda of it should be about pay rates and putting a rate card in. And the business is saying, <laughs> no, I just want to go faster. Let me use my suppliers. And so I think that becomes really important. Like the strategic part needs to be lean into your business that you're serving and yes. solve your parts first. And that may mean, guys, you're not putting a policy document in place first. That may mean you're not putting into technology or services in. To your exact point is if you start to solve the business problems, more problems find their way to you because yes. they know you're going to get it done. And then the things that you think make more sense that elevate scale your organization, it's a lot easier for here's my recommendation towards a technology, a new policy, what a workflow I want to look like. People start to say, Eric and Jeff have been incredibly successful. The business believes in what they're doing. Then yeah, this absolutely makes sense. Why wouldn't I do it? It's not a red tape measure. Yeah. It's because you've been, you're looking to solve for us. And so I think that's such a huge thing because I think CW program folks, whether seasoned or new, and what they've been taught or think are supposed to be. And I think that there's a lot of in the box thinking. It's here's what I have to implement to be a good yeah. CW practitioner, yeah. not yeah. here's how I serve the business to put better product and services out into the world. Yeah. Yeah. No, listen, no one loves a full day or multi-day whiteboard strategy workshop than me. I <laughs> look at, I, in the remote component of this sort of COVID and post-COVID era has really driven me nuts because I just enjoy the energy of people leaning in on a whiteboard around a pot of coffee, can't forget the coffee, and just starting at the left-hand side with a problem statement, designing really the strategy, but then incrementally what the tactics are to get there. And by the time we're done at the bottom, you take a picture and you're off and running. And we've gotten a little bit away from that. I say that simply to preface that a lot of people I've talked to that want to be strategic really think that that most of the time is spent on that whiteboard of design. And you just, again, you have to get out and execute. You have to do learn, adjust. You have to test things. You have to be willing to fail, to be really bold. You and I actually spoke briefly about this in one of our other discussions, 30 years almost being in the business. There's lots of neat thoughts and ideas out there. You need to be open to listening to them. And you need to be bold enough to think about being a beta. 
right, over and over again, as we take our strategies to market to see what solutions are there, we oftentimes have this hesitation that who's doing that? Where's it been done? How about raising your hand and saying, this is my problem. I'd like to do this. What's new that we can test? Now, again, you can't do that with everything, but incrementally in your list of five or 10 things, uh, try to be the first one through the wall because I do find that technology partners, MSP partners, all the folks that are out there are really anxious to have that proof of concept. And when you think about co-developing something truly unique, it is just one. I call it the Kool-Aid man approach. So those, yeah, those remember that. in the 80s and 90s know exactly what I'm talking about, but this <laughs> big red pitcher of Kool-Aid was a man and he would just run straight through the wall, but he'd end by saying, oh yeah. I think that um, might've even been in the seventies here. Yeah. I won't date myself that much. <laughs> Fair enough, but I do love, I think that's such an important thing. Be bold, be a beta. I think one of the things, my time at Brightfield was very interesting because we talked about benchmark strategies. Mm -hmm, one of the things mm -hmm. we talked about a lot is a lot of people, you're right, are looking to their left, their right, and behind them. And it comes out to say, like, why are you shooting for a benchmark that's at a C minus as right. an industry? Right. If we have not moved the bar forward, why mm -hmm. would you want to do what this other company has? Do? You don't know why they've gotten stuck, why they decided that. And so I love that idea of saying, especially we have technology at our hand, like we've never had before. Outside of the CW technology, other things that can be done is to look forward and what you can do. Look at your peers and what tools that they're using to see what you can do. Like you said, like there's risk with being the beta, but you can fail fast. And if you set the expectation of, we're gonna try this new, here's the parameters, here's what's good versus bad, let's move forward and here's how I'm gonna pivot if this doesn't work, people generally will follow you. And there, there's a big part about raising your hand to say, I'm willing to take the risk, here's how I've thought this through, are you willing to go with me? And typically, if you've done your homework, most people think, all right. And that starts your strategic adventure of saying, we're going to do things that are a little different because I want to modernize how we're doing things. Let me ask you this. Leaders come in all shapes and sizes, but I'm a big believer that leaders don't wait for homework assignments, right? If you are a leader, you are setting the goals and saying, here's what I like to do. And people may amend that, right? But they're not waiting for someone to hand me what you want me to do for this year. I'm waiting for this. It's your job to come to the table with a strategic mindset. And that's how you start your meeting. Your meeting should be how you start to build your reputation with those you know and those you don't know. How you're prepared, how you scope it, what are you saying that thing? We talked a lot when my time at LinkedIn, we would say, decide and go. Can we get close enough where we say, let's make a decision and let's shoot forward? Talk to me a little bit about some of your work at Intuitive Surgical and how you started your reputation as a leader and how, again, it's been a year. You said the first 90 days. Uh, was an interesting part for you, but share a little bit about your actual work over this past year. Sure, sure. And it is very interesting about the idea of homework assignments. Sure, we walk away from meetings with follow-up needs or we get lots of requests for different initiatives that we have to vet and we can decide that that's homework assignment. I think there's a concept that actually C12 uses around working in the business and working on the business. And a lot of times we are working so in the business that we forget that we need all the work on the business. So I would say that as a preface to this morning, I sat down with a cup of coffee, reviewed probably three different scorecards, and we launched a number of different things that we want to do based on the data because we're halfway through Q1. And what we're trying to do now is get ahead of the potential questions. We start to role play. Who's going to ask about this? What's that potentially a problem for? What's the success? So we can also roll that out. And so we began the morning that way. 
And that's really almost how I started here a year ago. I, I had the luxury when I came in of not knowing anything about the organization's operations per se and ask a lot of just simple, basic questions. Why do we do this? Why don't we do that? What has worked? What hasn't? And that helped myself and my team really sculpt and formulate what we were to do in the remaining nine months of last year when I was here. And quite honestly, that brought forward a couple of things. The exposure of our day-to-day data and our workflow. Again, going back to the fact that the best laid plans, even the most phenomenal strategy, the thing that tends to hit my desk, and I know some of my peers as well, most is, where's my quality talent today? All the AI, all the systems, all those agencies, all the stuff that's out there, while wonderful, has to execute on delivery of talent. I went ahead and watched, I think, gosh, about 15 initiatives when I first came in after I did my voice customer tour. I take complete responsibility for the angst, mess, and hurry that was launched. But that said, what it allowed us really to do was to understand how fast could we adapt to changes and how much was truly, we love to say, where's the low-hanging fruit? Um, Low-hanging doesn't necessarily mean it's easy. Right. So we did that and we actually accomplished about 10 of the 15, but it took us a couple of things. It was ensuring that we were transparent to our internal stakeholders. It was being open to criticism and a good look in the mirror to our external providers in the space. It was making sure that we were resourced correctly. It's easy to point fingers at your outsourced partners, but when you take a look at what you're pointing at and then you backtrack as to what are their failure points, we had a good look look in the mirror and we had some things to change as a partner because one of the goals is, can we be the client of choice? Can we be one of those marquee logos? And I think lastly, was just getting proactive, having a lot of discussions with individuals. We finished 10 of 15 and of that, we took a pause in October, November. And we put a plan on the page for 2023 and beyond. And what we did is we refined four strategic pillars that were aligned to our business obligations. And each of those, interestingly enough, we attempted to tie back to leadership's individual or functional goals as well, right? Because let's face it, if you're tying their success uh, to your plans, they're going to be more willing to invest in you. Now, of course, that really sticks your neck out too. So inside of the four pillars, we listed between three and four key things that we would either measure or change through the course of the next 15 months. And so now, if a new initiative, if a shiny new object, whatever it is comes up, we bump it against that plan on a page. And if it's not there, and there's not an enormously compelling business case to add it, we just put it on the back burner. We pulse it. If we come up for a breather and have a chance, we take a look at that list, but we're sticking to our four pillars. And I think that's so important because I really want to think about being strategic, the ability to plan and map out. I have a couple of mentees who are phenomenal CWPM and they want to do everything. And I think when I think about some of the struggle they have is in what order and why and how do you build and really doing the work to say, to get for me, total workforce visibility, total talent management. There's several things that have to be in place to do that, right? And being able to show, okay, over what period of time can I do this? What are my building blocks? Who do I need? Is there time, energy, effort? Do I have to ask for approval or can I do this on my own? But the idea of saying, I actually have this plan and being crisp and articulate, you're exactly right. Be able to say no to folks. Hey, that is a good idea, but that's not going to push us for scale, speed, quality, 
compliance or cost. I like it, but it's going to come later. It really gives you crispness and articulation for them to understand why isn't it just a yes? It's important to me. It should be important to you. I think you should coin plan on a page. I want SIA to write articles about this because I think that is so important on that. Yeah, I wish I could coin it. I, I have to admit, and I like to steal willingly and credit open. <laughs> and, and there was a phenomenal HR and procurement leader at a client I had years ago that, that developed a plan on a page. And it's just something I've taken with me. But just to backtrack before we talk a little bit about the pillars is you mentioned a component there. It's the other S word in strategy, which is sequencing. And, and when we think about doing things out of sequence, because we are in a rush, because yes. sometimes low hanging fruit is actually step five. And if we do it at step one, now we might have to either unwind a lot of things we've already set up, or quite honestly, we minimize the impact of step one through four so that step five actually is the big bang. And sometimes our strategies tend to lean towards how do I make the biggest bang early? And how do I, at the top of the rooftops, how do I scream that we had success? And yet that might be out of sequence and cause you now months of angst of rework, et cetera. So I, I'm glad you brought that out. But yeah, our plan on the page basically aligns specifically to where our company is headed as well. Global growth, right? We are a global company and our program right now is global-ish. And we know that there's needs and resources already up and running, which we're about to go about to collect and begin a service implementation to do so. But our mantra around global growth is better before bigger. So we wanted to make sure that everything we're doing now is executed incredibly well and that before we get to another country that we're currently not servicing, that we have some stabilization as well as move out of just global harmonization and look at what is localized and necessary, right? We don't want to have tons of fragments, but we can't just force feed a U.S., an EMEA, or even a, a South American sort of program into Germany or into Taiwan, et cetera. So those are some of the things that, you know, better before bigger is number one as a launch point to global growth. Our second is compliance. Of course, most, if not everyone listening to this, whether you're in HR, procurement, or this is one of many hats you wear, compliance is utmost in regards to how we handle this. And so we're using a trust and verify mantra in that pillar. And the reason for that is that we have so many working models and so many compliance toll gates that we do have to trust that they're up, but we need to continuously pulse them and verify them. And, and I have found over the past three to four years, our best change agents in terms of whether I was on the consulting side or now practitioner side are our audit and risk folks. Love them because they are also in a transformational period. They're moving out of the I gotcha and they're moving into continuous improvement and helping to de-risk and bulletproof the organization. So when you come to them and say, I've done some self audits, I've got some ideas. And again, you align it to what's on their agenda. You immediately not only have some investment of time, resources, and other things you might not normally have access to, but we're no longer seen as coming in to say who you can or can't use as a supplier, who you can or can't pay for at that rate. That's old news and we should have that set up. But this is a way for us to begin to envelop a wider program from the stance of different type of platform. And these folks are huge champions for that. Our third pillar is operational excellence. So that's looking at enable and align. So how are we enabling all of our particular workflow to, as our CEO likes to say, take sand out of the gears? How can we make it more efficient? 
a lot of the things that we're changing, we're trying to make transparent to the user, right? It's the messy behind the curtain up front. It needs to be transparent and pretty easy. And for some of those, it's not only the efficiency piece, but it's financial stewardship, right? So everyone wants cost out. We get that. But at what point have you measured your line of diminishing returns? And as you squeeze that line of diminishing return, is your time to fill slipping? Is your quality of candidate slipping? Is your end of assignment earlier because of either performance or people are leaving for more money? Lots of things that we have to tune into as the other side of the dollar coin. And again, thinking about how do we talk the talk of the business, while time to fill for us is a good forecasting metric or KPI, what we're really looking to do is say from a manufacturing operations, what about variance to want? So when we have people that are literally supposed to be placing parts on carts or building the robotics or whatever it is, we have a certain number of people that need to be on a line. We have a certain amount of output we need to have. And that backs into how many stations we need to fill. And if we have gaps in those stations, I get calls because overtime goes up, turnover goes up cost goes up and then ultimately we miss product out the door. So time to fill doesn't matter to the business. What matters is feet under the station at the time. So we're reconfiguring our taxonomy and our measurements to meet the business. And then last is just customer satisfaction. It has to be. Are we regularly understanding the voice of the customer? What are we hearing? Does it align to the first three pillars? And what noise in the system can we address? And we're doing that in a couple of ways. We do that not only with our stakeholders in terms of internal, but we also actually pulse our agencies, our partners. Next week, we have a supplier forum coming up. We do it twice a year, one in person, one virtual. And we open access. We hold panels of our using managers. We tell them our forecasts. We talk about the good and the bad, and then we issue scorecards. And they're a huge customer to us. Are we paying on time? Are we paying accurately? Are you getting feedback to your slates? You know, all the things that, again, for 30 years, been hearing the same things, but how do we get better at it and being willing to hear from them and actually take meaningful action? I know that was a lot in a handful of minutes, but I'll take a breath and see if that resonated. No, I think that's, I think that's huge. One, yes, there's a lot to dig in there. We could take that many places, but I would say for the listeners, For those who haven't put together a roadmap or thought about planning, I think those four pillars are really key to say, all right, it's what I'm trying to do because that fit underneath those four as a starting point. And again, the language may be for everyone as they start to figure it out, but those are general tenets of overall CW philosophy, which I think is good. I love the idea, better, not bigger. When I think about a lot of technologies and services, it's always like, where are you implementing next? But it really is making sure that what you have is worthy to be sought after. One of Mm -hmm. our customers is great. They focused on less served countries and small markets. And what was exciting is because those markets typically hadn't been served by a technology, there was a waiting line to implement us because they were so excited by here's the key points around compliance. Here, we make this easy for you. And they said, fantastic. And there's a line to implement versus trying to push it. So it was very much of a, they were pulling it versus a push because they had a really clear value proposition to, to establish this and what it would take, which I think is really important because I think generally people say, oh, it's always US, Canada first, and then UK and Ireland, <laughs> and then India and Singapore. Then most of the suppliers, if I'm being very honest, most of the suppliers start to lose focus on it because the spend isn't there. 
right. percentage of spend model makes them less excited about the rest of the world. And so you really do need a pricing philosophy, but also a philosophy that enables all the countries around the world to say, hey, I want to be bought in because it solves these problems for me. So I love that. I think a lot of times it seems supplier proliferation is still a dirty phrase. And honestly, it shouldn't be. Do you need 267 suppliers inside of a couple hundred million dollar program? No, no, you don't. But again, we've all been doing this a long time. And even those that haven't, you have a long history to tap into that's out there. We know what good rates are, or we should. And we should know how, again, do we just simply want the lowest price possible? And that will ultimately guide our philosophy and how our brand is activated in the market through agencies and placements. Or are we looking to make sure that we're paying a competitive market rate and therefore take that forward so that once 80% is addressed and we have that long tail of the other 20%, now it's time to start adding local presence, even though I in all due respect to a lot of the big players in the market, and they're wonderful, and they really do rise to the occasion. They don't operate in every country, and they can't. It's always still a patchwork design when you get to some of these far-flung areas. And the rich ability to dig locally, understand local labor laws, in absence, like you're saying, of even the technology, now all of a sudden, I'm actually an advisor and a partner to our business in some country before the tech and the full programs there. And now all of a sudden, when you come forward and you say, now we actually are bringing some process and we are bringing some policies, you have far less resistance. So I think you hit the nail on the head. I couldn't agree more. I think the idea of the CW role to be a supplier rationalization activity is, I think it it needs to stop back when the 90s. We understood why it was there. And it does like 267, you're exactly right. Does it make sense? But when you're working and solving your business needs, especially let's go back to your example of outsourced. In general, these large companies typically know who they should be bringing in. Mm-hmm. And it becomes an example and an exercise of you showing partnership, not I know how to do this better than you. If you want to piss anyone off, is have them having worked in their role in 20 years at the same company or whatnot, and then been told, I have a better supplier than the one that you think. It's the long-term thinking of saying, actually, can I get this person to be a champion if we utilize that? And of course, do I have others? Maybe, or maybe I don't have it. But there's a way, again, it's speed to business. It's time to productivity of already knowing a quality supplier to get this started. Is that actually a better term of measurement versus here's my standard contract, here's my rates, we already have this. It's big picture thinking, right? When you think about how you're solving, especially new markets, new businesses. I love the way that you have on the four pillars because it really does help shape how I make decisions, how I look at problems, and that it's not a black tape. Like A quote that you had shared with me when we were prepping for this was, be a problem solver not a place where transactions are parked. And that is so huge when you think about how you're sharing, here's what we're going after. Here's where I need to pivot because businesses do, curly hair example, but I'm not just this order taker. Yeah, and that's where the strategy comes in. Right back to the top of the discussion is if we have not figured out how to streamline our transactions, how to automate areas of it, and how to make some things that I like to say, are we doing this in a core, common, and consistent manner? And then bringing that data to our businesses. Like you said, I'm not here to tell you who you can and can't use, but I'd love to give you some data to do some comparison because everyone has their favorite. Yep. And so uh, you're right, champion that person. And they're the ones to decrease the skids when you go to the next 
layer or to the next country. And again, that is strategy. A lot of people would sit there probably and say, Jeff, that's tactics. We can split hairs over it. I think it's a fine line. I had a former CEO. I love what he used to say, which is I would rather have a good strategy that is highly executable than designing the very best strategy that I never actually get started. And that's the truth, right? All wonderful things still going on in this industry. We all debate how long it's been around. When you take a look at when the first sort of temps rolled out long before MSPs, VOPs, VMSs, et cetera, it's a 40 year plus run. And when we take a look at how much people want to engage either as a freelance contingent, as a lifestyle, or even as their side hustle, we really just have to embrace that and hopefully find some new nuggets in there. Yep. Let's go back to, I love your, because variance to want was a new term for me. It absolutely makes sense. And it's something that we've been chatting a lot about. The time to productivity, time mm-hmm. to feel is the common one. It's based in recruiting or whatnot, but the idea of time to productivity was really important. So why in your business was variance to want important to use within the business versus mm-hmm. how you usually frame a CW golden initiatives? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, we all anchor whether you're in contingent or direct talent acquisition. We all look at time to fill. Time to fill is just, is the best worst metric there is. (laughs) That's the quote that's going on LinkedIn, by the way. There it is right there. Yes, it is. And I've been, I have been saying that for quite some time because we love to anchor to it, but unless you unpack it, it's meaning because what we really want to talk about is when is the intended resource necessary? And I gleamed variance to want from a phenomenal black belt leader at GE when I used to serve as GE years ago. And I parked the concept for people like this, pun intended. Think of logistics and think you're loading and unloading floors, right? You only have so many bays available. If trucks arrive too soon and are out there waiting, it's costly because you have a backup of your bays. If they show up late, you have bays that aren't being tended to, right? So we want to create the want. What is that intended want date? We want to shrink the variance of too early or too late to as close as possible. Now, look, we're dealing with human beings. And while lots of people say we're predictable, I also think that we're, our prediction is that we're unpredictable in a job market. The business as a manufacturing and logistics company inside its core, not taking away from our amazing IP that we have, is that we have to get product out the door to the healthcare systems. We have to get product out the door and into the hands of our sales teams. We have to receive materials to build that product. And so we're a bookend company, enormous industrial base of assembly technicians and material handlers, and then we have a lot of IT. IT is a little squishy. If I deliver a great developer within plus or minus 10 days of a target date, usually don't hear a lot of noise. When we do not fulfill material handling and assembly within the week's time that we're looking at or two weeks time that we're looking at, we hear a lot of noise. But then I get to talk to the business differently as well. I say, okay, you tell me you need, let's say, 30 people. If I give you 30 people on Monday, can you start that off? Oh, no, we need stations, we need training, we need onboarding, and then we need to review time to productivity, which in ours is a bit. So now all of a sudden I'm having a different conversation. How much volume can you ingest and put into a station each week? So what we did is we started breaking that down. So now all of a sudden, when we get on a conversation, we're not talking about the fact that, yes, we're going to hire several hundred people in this particular category over a year. What we're really talking about is can our supply chain deliver to us 
five people a week at this location, nine people a week at this location, 22 at this location. And can we keep the cadence up until quite honestly, our teams are yelling uncle, uncle, right? And so now we're looking at what every other Monday looks like for starts. And we're talking about that business. And then the nice thing is that we can measure the quality of individual at that point around time to productivity. How's the training going? And then we look at quick quits. So I look at not only the turnover that we're having and why, but are we losing people inside of a heavy investment period, which is the day they arrive to the day they're fully productive. And if inside of quick quit, I'm losing a lot of people, I need to unravel that and begin a strategy right? That says, is it pay rate? Is it training? Is it something else that will allow me to reduce that section so that it might not be a cost play for our rates? It might be a cost play for my turnover inside of that particular area where quite honestly, training is sunk dollars and we can measure those. So again, people might say that's data, that's tactics, it's daily, but there is a strategy formulating specifically around that and the business is expecting results. And that's how the business is looking at that. Now you used a good logistics example, but that can still be spoken about at the professional level, right? So you think about corporate jobs versus on the line or so, but to your exact point, when you think about what is the business looking at? at what they need and what time and how are they being measured, right? Is Are they working on the line? You use Bayes as an example versus pushing code out the door. And I think one of the big areas in CW ownership that's missing is that onboarding, how we're training teams to have something ready for whether it's temporary workers, consultant, outsource, you name it. Most of the stuff that's developed, if they have it, is employee focused, but most of that can be fixed for the non-employee side. But that idea of once they start, are they productive? Do they yeah. feel like they have the right tools to succeed? Because I remember in TA, they would say it takes 90 days to onboard a recruiter. I'm like, that is way too long. But that was the standard. Three months to get someone up to full productivity. And we had measurements that said, all right, 20% moves to 60, moves to 80, and on we go. But when you think about the various to want or the ability of someone to start, stay motivated and produce as quickly as possible, because we're typically not hiring just low-level people anymore. We're hiring people on all aspects of the business, Mm -hmm. everywhere, having them be productive. And that's really what the the manager wants. The business needs them almost immediately to get something out the door. It's a very different look. And I love this time to feel is the best and the worst because you're exactly right. It is great to know. And it really is more about, can we do things quickly? Do we have the right supply chain? But not, are we actually funneling this talent through to the larger outcome of what we're trying to get done. And again, that goes back to the business. What is the business trying to do? Quality work as quickly as possible to hit their goals so everyone makes money. You remember though, you know, we used to have what was speed, quality, and cost pick two. And we need to get away from that mentality because we actually can have them all if we understand what our strategy is to drive that. And I'll go back to the best worst metric of time to fill to say that interesting conversation going back a lot of CEOs, a lot of CHROs, even VPs of talent all get together and they talk about things. And all of a sudden someone comes back and says, gosh, our time to fill is whatever, 15, 23 days higher than our peer average. I want that down. And then when you actually do some digging, and I love the ability to harvest data out there today in the realm of just open public data, is going back and saying, you're right. The four companies that you told me about are filling faster. Their turnover's higher. 
their brand in the marketplace is not as good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let's unpack that. Are we willing to forfeit speed to fill for the quality, the sustainability, the brand impact? And that's a great, again, that's why that number is both and not great because unless you can actually unpack why it's a good number, a bad number, or what you're trying to influence because of the number, it's just a terrible number in and of itself. Ah, oh, we could talk all day. I have two questions <laughs> in about yeah. five minutes. We talked about growing a reputation for being strategic. This parlays into what we're talking about right now is as someone who is looking to elevate their ability to influence their reputation, even their bonus, what do you recommend the best way for an individual to do this? Is it through their boss and leadership? Is it through their peers? Is it through the business? It definitely, you want to align what your boss's goals are. And more importantly, depending on where your level is, your boss's boss's goals. Because again, if they see that alignment and you're driving to it, then you're apt to get more of the things you need to accomplish them. But I also think that the same is true in the reputation and the influencing of others. We're rolling out a program now, actually going back to onboarding, what are we doing to consistently ensure that people are vetted appropriately, that our engagement framework is correct, and that the provisioning is correct and the deprovisioning is correct? And that has actually brought us into complete collaboration, not only with our risk team, but finance, um, facilities, security, et cetera. And so, what we've done in the business case of our program that we're looking to launch is we took the leaders key goals for 2023 and we cascaded them into this completely and we said where do we have direct alignment and so we're trying to stack the deck intentionally but with things that we know are actually deliverable outcomes right so we're not trying to simply say hey this will help you hit your goal what we're doing is tying it directly to those and so that allows us again initially to start horizontally but then move up vertically into a strategic leader profile and so the nice thing is, as we've been reporting out to the L3 layer and then up to the L2, right into the C-suite, each of those conversations become further refined. The first is issues we're trying to resolve, things that we need from you. Are you on board to when we finally level up to we're ready, we're all aligned. Our recommendation is the impact or outcome is, and what we need from you is a yes and no, and this kind of funding, and here's the business case. And so we consistently refine what that 40-page deck, 10-page deck, three pages look like in that paradigm of going up the ladder. And the nice thing is, as we have incrementally kept the leadership involved in that proactively, even when we slip on dates, I fall on the sword, we're slipping, here's why, and here's how we're correcting it. But more importantly, bringing them visibility to incremental wins and outcome. It's just, again, you walk in and the amount of questions begin to reduce. And now all of a sudden an hour meeting is a half an hour meeting is ending in 12 minutes. I love the seven minute meetings, but uh, you get there. So that's where, again, I really think 20% strategy, 80% execution and keep some of that malleable layer between that 20 and that 80 so that you can make meaningful adjustments. All right, last question. Final takeaways. I have a ton of notes that depend on what you say, I will summarize, but knowing <laughs> that we have a variety of listeners, what's your final advice for someone who is trying to be considered or change their behavior to be more strategic? So I think, again, depending on the persona that is listening and wants to deploy things, I would say across the board for everybody that you can and you are strategic. No one has to tell you you are. Step into it, 
do some of these things and live that. And I think naturally, again, the influence and the credibility will build for you. What I would say is from a strategic cost perspective, so again, not necessarily the hat you wear, but the thing you're driving, is really begin to look at things that are more creative. If you are at that sort of diminishing returns area, it's okay to ask your agencies for strategies that they're using at other clients to reduce cost and what's going on. It's okay to ask Beeline, right? Or whatever your partner is about what's happening in other organizations, what's new and how can you continue to do that? And from the compliance standpoint, again, there are some neat new ideas that are out there that are helpful that quite honestly, we never dreamed of doing until we started to really ask more individuals. So don't be afraid to step out, talk to your peers, talk to vendors that aren't in your ecosystem today, go to events, just learn, 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 be a continuous learner. And I think lastly is, and I'm happy actually, Erica, to provide this, if this is something that you want to send out to people that are listening, is we've built a persona matrix from top of the house, right to the front door. And there are things in there that say, these are our items that they would be concerned with or that they would understand the influence that you're attempting to do. And again, if you can really look into the psyche of that persona and model it, again, our plan on a page, all this paperwork I have in front of me, I will honestly say not earth shattering. It's just how it is told in a different way to the audience that creates that strategic focus and, uh, and that partnership. No, this is huge. I can't say thank you enough, Jeff. We'll do this again on a different topic. I've probably pay rates versus bill rates. I've been dying to have a debate on pay rates versus bill rates because it's the old <laughs> tales over time as beauty, the beast would said, but again, really appreciate your ideas and your thoughts on how to be strategic. Again, for those who are listening, I think thoughtfulness, planning, putting it on paper, sequencing, serving the business goals, not your own, using their language, letting the business sell your reputation as a problem solver. And I love the final one, TF is the best and worst metric we have. So thank you again so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you. We'll see you next time.